Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The race is on, and Max Verstappen gave the Orange Army that created an extraordinary atmosphere at the first Dutch Grand Prix in 36 years with a home victory. But it was a close one, with Lewis Hamilton pressuring him throughout. But could he have done more to push for victory? I'm Ed Straw, and joining me to answer this question and many more are Scott Mitchell and Mark Hughes. Well, Mark, like me, you were at Zandvoort. Phenomenal to be back here. Great atmosphere the Dutch fans created. Yeah, absolutely fantastic. Um, first time I've been here since 91, I think. And it's uh, some of it very familiar looking and the, the general feel of the place, just as I remember it, um, but obviously the circuit a little bit different. Um, but it's never seen an event like this, even in its heyday. Uh, it's, you know, it's first heyday. Uh, this was just a phenomenal sporting event. Yeah, the perfect time for the Dutch Grand Prix is, of course, all about Max Verstappen. Scott Mitchell, you were watching from afar. Did that atmosphere and the the excitement of the crowd and the noise come across through the television coverage? Yeah, because um, there were there were still things throughout the the weekend where the roar of the crowd was unmistakable. One of the loudest was for when when Hamilton stopped on track at the start of FP two. That was. Uh, that was incredibly audible in the TV coverage, but just everything, just the 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 amazing jubilant scenes in the grandstands, the just the the bright orange colours that just dominated every scenic shot of the track, the uh, the smoke from the flares coming across, and just just ev- everything, everything about it, just. I obviously can only imagine what it would have been like actually being there, but it was one of those events where where it just does an amazing job of coming through the television coverage that this is a real event. And while obviously I think it is a bit more powerful because we've just had so long without fans and we're still getting used to it again, but it's kind of a bit like how the post uh, the post race scenes at Silverstone were just so evocative. This was that, and a bit more, I think, because this was a I think a smaller crowd, but you wouldn't have guessed it. It was a cauldron of of, of energy and passion and support, and yeah, that absolutely came across in the television coverage. It's absolutely brilliant. When you have a, a well-attended home race for a, for a big-name driver, it's absolutely brilliant and, in many ways, great that they got their, their home success. I have to say, that cheer you mentioned when Hamilton stopped in uh, FP2, I was watching it turn three at the banking, and I heard the big cheer, and I hadn't seen what happened. I didn't know why there was a red flag. And I thought, oh, blimey, someone's probably had a big one, because it's added to me like the cheer when a driver gets out of the car after a big accident. But uh, it was all good kind of knockabout stuff and good-natured as well. So uh, I think it I think it worked really well. Now, we do, of course, have questions from the Race Members Club on this podcast. And just before we get into the race, Scott, uh, we had one question from Oscar Robledo, who asked if the track will work with the banking for the new regs. Any reason why not? Uh, I, I can't see I can't see any reason why, why it shouldn't. Um, the, only, the only thing I would imagine that changes for next year on the banking is obviously the new regs kind of... Uh, 
they kind of throw F1's reference point for whether or not the DRS could be used through the banked final corner. Uh, that was something that I believe they were going to use the data from this event to then reconsider for next year. But obviously the the downforce levels and the grip that the cars are producing are going to be very different in 2022. So I'm not really sure what a 2021 car could do with DRS open through the banked final corner is entirely relevant to what a 2022 car could do. But in terms of everything else, there's nothing I can think of within the way the cars are going to be designed that would stop them being able to take the banks turns three and the final corner as well. And it would be, I would, I would advocate, I would advocate F1 suddenly at the last second tearing up its aero rule book for 2022 and redoing the cars to allow them to go on the banking if there was a, if there was any kind of problem because the addition of turn three especially I think is one of the great additions to the F1 calendar for as long as I can remember and it, yeah I'd rather I'd honestly rather us have to come up with a last minute completely new rule book than have to get rid of a corner like that. Yeah, I, I absolutely loved it. Watching it during that FP2 session was absolutely fantastic. It, it is right up there with the, with the great corners now, just because there was so much variety in terms of the way they approached it. But let's get on to the race, Mark. While Max Verstappen and Red Bull were always in control, Hamilton and Mercedes did pose a few strategic questions along the way. So my usual question is, how was the race won? But I guess it has to start with qualifying, really, doesn't it? Yeah, there were, a, I mean, as, as an overall... Um, reference point, the Red Bull Honda was just uh, a few tenths quicker than the Mercedes this weekend. And uh, the Mercedes had a particular problem through turn two and, two and three, and that's sort of all one sequence, really. And it just it just didn't work there the whole weekend, and it was losing um, almost two tenths, um, even by the time that fashioned as well as they could in, in terms of setup. It, it was still losing two tenths just through that sequence alone. And so that, that really defined the, the, the competitive shape between the two cars. And and after that, really, it was just a question of, of, of Max and Red Bull sort of maximizing that package that they had under them. And it almost went wrong in qualifying. He didn't, he didn't quite lose pole, but he only, he only clinched it by a, a few hundredths um, it, with a, a non-operative DRS that cost uh, that was later calculated 0.183, and uh, a bit of a moment coming out of turn three on his final lap that cost him, they reckon, just around two tenths. So he's potentially on pole by well over three tenths, and <laughs> just about rescued it by uh, a few hundredths. But that was okay; it's, it's only being on pole that counts. So that um, that was the. The foundation, the, the pole was the foundation, um, but then is just astronomical first lap. It was just uh, one of the all-time great first laps. He was just gone, and uh, I think he crossed the line 1.7 seconds ahead at the end of the first lap, and that was absolutely crucial because it was the slowest car at the end of the straight, so he needed to be a long way clear of Hamilton, and he knew that. Um, he needed to be a long way clear of Hamilton on that first lap because uh, potentially the, the, the Mercedes was um, going to devour it and get ahead going into the Red Bull's best bit and then you know he, with um, he's then got a, a much more difficult uh, job on his hands if, if 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 that's if he's been passed by the Mercedes so uh, yeah he managed to do that um, with a, an absolutely uh, epic first lap and then it was really just the usual uh, 
sort of cat and mouse game of strategy, and they decided earlier on that it was going to be a, a two-stop. That was if you were running up the front and you could get a, a good gap behind you so you didn't have to worry too much about how much traffic you were going to have to fight through. A two-stop was a faster way of doing it, and they both committed to that pretty early on. Um, Red Bull would have known that even if they'd tried to do a one-stop, Mercedes would have counted with a two-stop and forced them into it anyway, so they, they, they just took control of it. Uh, that way early on. Uh, there's a couple of little gaps where Lewis got close enough that he might have been able to undercut ahead and get track position. One was where um, the left Valtteri Bottas out uh, a long time after Max and Lewis had stopped. Enough to delay Max and um, it got Lewis right onto Max's tail. And had he come in at that point, yes, he would have undercut ahead, but it would have been a, a very, very long um, subsequent um, Stint with very poor spacing of the um, the, 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 the the stint stint length, uh, and he would have been at a big tire disadvantage later on. And you just have to assume that um, he probably wouldn't have been able to hang on against a faster car on on much faster tires at the end, which is how that would have um, panned out, I think. But um, yeah, a, a couple of little sniffs of opportunity. But as Lewis said afterwards, he said it would have had. Even to have just the slightest chance, everything would have had to have been perfect. The pit stops, uh, the traffic parting in the right way, the strategy calls, everything. And he said that none of those things were absolutely perfect on the day. Um, but the underlying thing was that Max and Red Bull were just a good few tenths quicker. They, they were just playing, really. They, were, they, they had enough in hand that they could edge it out and, and do it as as needed. They could just pull out the gap when needed and they had an answer they had the raw performance to have an answer for everything that Mercedes and Hamilton could throw at them we have inevitably had a few questions from the race members club about this which I'll throw at you Mark Tamara Salter asks were Mercedes wrong to bring Lewis in that early for his second pit stop which brought him back out into traffic uh, even Lewis was questioning that decision over the radio was it a case of trying to do something different to Max to try and make a difference and Connected to that, Jake Hoffman says, did Mercedes simply think Red Bull wouldn't use the hard? And how did they not consider that volume of traffic? So can you address those? That second stop attracting a lot of interest. Yeah, the, the, the timing of Hamilton's second stops was in hindsight a bit early. And I think Mercedes would probably agree with that, looking at it in hindsight. But what actually triggered it was that Hamilton haven't been sort of keeping the gap at 1.6, 1.7 seconds and looking to Mercedes as if he was matching, able able to match the Red Bull's pace at this phase of the race. Suddenly Max, having been told to just give it everything he'd got, uh, just sliced a huge amount off his lap times, like something like seven tenths on two consecutive laps. And suddenly that 1.7 second gap had ballooned in almost three seconds in just a couple of laps. And Mercedes, before that got too big, brought him in at that point. So it was basically the underlying pace that Red Bull had been hiding that when they unleashed it, um, suddenly triggered Mercedes into bringing Hamilton in before too much damage was done. And I think um, really the whatever the choice of tyre Red Bull would make uh, wouldn't really have, have had that much effect on the, 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 the track position at the, the, that time. Um, the, 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 the outlap would have been a bit slow with the um with the, with the hard tire on with the red bull uh but it, n- not by uh you know it would it wouldn't wouldn't really have mattered it wouldn't have changed any any anything meaningful 
We should also talk about the other Mercedes of Valtteri Bottas. Scott, there was a little mini drama at the end with Bottas coming in at the end of lap 67 for what Mercedes said was a precautionary pit stop. And then, of course, the plan was Hamilton would then come in to set fastest lap. He then did 90, 95% of a proper fastest lap. Hamilton, of course, did reclaim that fastest lap after his point. But Tamara Salter asked, what are your thoughts on this situation? And uh, points out that if anyone was in any doubt that Bottas won't be at Mercedes next year, then the fact he did temporarily have fastest lap is surely proof. So what did you make of that whole episode? Well, I thought it was um, I thought it was indicative of a driver who's a bit frustrated at having to play second fiddle and even though even though Bottas will know that that was the right thing for Mercedes to do protect that point for Hamilton it was just it was just something that even in the moment he's just a bit he's just he's just too annoyed to initially accept it basically and you know he says that by the time he was told to abandon the lap at the end you know in sector three he was just sort of playing games, which I think was a reference to sort of how he approached Sector 3 rather than suggesting he was playing games with Mercedes. Um, and he sort of said, well, you know, I knew I'd backed off enough that if Lewis had just done like a normal lap and then done Sector 3 properly, he would have easily beaten my lap time. But it's not really the point. Um, he still created a situation where Lewis had to set the fastest lap on the final lap to get that point back, which just... It's just unnecessary because there could have been anything. There, there could have been a bit of traffic. Hamilton could have had a problem. There could have been a yellow flag. There are all sorts of things there that could have stopped Hamilton from actually completing the lap the way he needed to in order to, to set the fastest lap. Uh, he could have made a mistake. He could have done something, you know, because he's having to push harder than he needs to do. And it's just something that, you know, Hamilton has the performance there and the ability there to set that fastest lap if someone else goes faster and he needs to do it on the very last lap of the Grand Prix. To need to do it because your teammate has unnecessarily set a faster lap time, it's just unnecessary. I kind of understand why Bottas did it. I'm I'm not saying that anyone competitive wouldn't feel frustrated or anything like that, but it's kind of, it does feel a bit unprofessional. It does feel a bit unnecessary. And also just... In a more extreme sense, it's not this. It doesn't send the strongest team player message, does it? I know that Valtteri's future is probably already secure for 2022, and one incident like this isn't going to fundamentally change anyone's opinion of him. But I just don't think it sends a great like image of yourself if it's kind of like, well, you know, I've I've had enough and I'm throwing my toys out the pram, so I'm just going to be a bit difficult. I just think it's a bit unnecessary, especially because like Bottas just isn't that kind of person or driver. So these are just sort of his moments where it's almost, it almost feels like he's um, acting out a little bit. But this is sort of this is as much as he can act out because he's just not got it in him to do anything worse than this. Yeah, he's he's still too much of a team player even when he does that. But it it was funny because Toto Wolff after the race said, "Yeah, it was it was all fine because he did back off." But I did then say to Toto, "Well." Obviously, it did create a situation because, as you said, Scott, if there was a yellow flag even, it could have cost Hamilton a point. This championship could easily be won or lost by a point. So uh, he did admit they'd have a, a little amicable chat about it uh, afterwards. So it's not sort of a big controversy or anything, but just a little interesting uh, subplot. But on the subject of Bottas, Mark, ultimately, 
he could have been a factor at the front, but he wasn't really, was he? He ended up being a bit of a distant third. And that's, I guess, the problem for Bottas, isn't he? He's just not in race conditions always quite quick enough to play the role that Mercedes really needed because he could have changed that race. Yes, although um, I don't think we're quite comparing like with like there on in terms of pure pace because the intention at Mercedes was always to split the strategy with put Valtteri on a one-stop and, and Lewis on a two so that they could sort of try and put a pincer movement on, on Verstappen. But So, yeah, Valtteri was having to drive to a pace that so that he knew he was doing a much longer initial stint and that's, that's where he fell behind. But... Yeah, I don't think if if you'd if you'd swapped roles, if if you know, and uh, you'd said uh, Lewis is going to be on a one stop and Valtteri on a two, uh, I don't think you would have seen it play out the way it did. Um, I think you would have still seen Lewis come out on top. So yeah, so he, he's um, he's very shown over the years. He's very very quick over one lap, sometimes quicker than Lewis, although only a couple of times this year. Um, but yeah, these. The biggest deficit remains in the race and just that, that combination of managing the tyres and, and the pace at the same time. Um, it's just not on the same level as Lewis, but um, hardly anybody else is either. It's the way that um, Mercedes sort of pins the strategy came undone so, I don't want to say easily, but so quickly when Verstappen caught back up to Bottas. And I know there was such a big tyre tire offset, you can't really expect Bottas to hold on too long, but it's almost... It was a little bit like France. I thought it was actually a little bit worse where I thought it was worse this time than it was in, in France where you're like, okay, well, Valtteri, all you need, just, he's, he even got the message, didn't he? Like you're defending the race lead here. This is basically crucial for the race. And like the first time Max gets within sniffing distance of Valtteri, there's just a tiny error. It's not, it wasn't huge. It's not like he went through the gravel or anything like that, but it was just, it was just enough of an error to put Max immediately on his tail and just the move was done basically before they were even activating, Max was even activating DRS. He got such a great run on him through the final corner and it's just, again, taking it as if the roles were reversed, I just I just don't think Lewis makes it quite as easy for Max to get in front and I don't know whether that, tra- I don't think it transforms the race entirely but that I do think that, that pincer movement was the best chance Mercedes had of unsettling Max properly and Hamilton barely had enough chance to get onto the back of Verstappen before Verstappen was already ahead of the other Mercedes so yeah I I, I thought like the fastest lap thing was a bit a bit rubbish but whatever I actually thought like the worst thing Bottas did in terms of the job he was meant to do for Mercedes today came earlier in the race with with that I I I just I don't know I just feel like he could he, he could or should have held on a bit longer than he did and it's just the normal thing with Bottas. He's a very, very good driver. But particularly with Verstappen and Hamilton pushing each other so hard in this race, everyone up to and including fourth was lapped. So the pace was was red hot ultimately. So that's always going to make life a little bit difficult for him. Uh, Mark, let's just quickly look at the, the wider significance. Verstappen's got a three-point championship lead. Mercedes is still ahead in the Constructors' Championship by 12 points, which is in large part thanks to Bottas making a much bigger contribution than Perez this weekend. Simon T asks, what can we take from this race with regards to the relative strengths and weaknesses of the Red Bull and Mercedes and how might this play out over the rest of the season? Any conclusions from this one? I think it's confirmation of the the, the pattern that we've seen. If you take Hungary out of the equation, which I've always said was a miss, you know, it wasn't the, um, we didn't, we didn't see a representative performance from the Red Bull and Hungary. Um, so 
generally circuits placing a lot of emphasis on downforce. The Red Bull, you know, is is faster. Those circuits that reward efficiency and drag a little bit more, the Mercedes tends to edge it. Uh, I think, you know, if you're looking for a pattern between the two cars on circuit types, it's it's that, really. Uh, I don't think... Uh, the other things that have been put forward, such as engine developments one way or the other, on the Mercedes or the Honda side, or the Mercedes up, you know, changing, changing the, um, the barge boards and the floor at Silverstone, or the new tougher rear tyre. I think these are just um, things that are going on around that. I think the basic thing driving the performance uh, from circuit to circuit is the, the, just the low and high rec aero philosophies and what one works um, spectacularly well on a, on a circuit like this. Um, with, but we need lots of downforce and the other one works better at uh, places like Monza and Spa. Yeah, I'm sure we'll see that played out on the remaining tracks for the rest of the season. Well, Scott, looking outside the top three, Pierre Gasly described his fourth on the grid on Saturday as our pole position. So it follows that his fourth in the race was Alfa Tauri's win in the race. For Sapphire and Mercedes were a class apart. Gasly was a lap down, such as the pace. Do you have any sympathy for Gasly saying he's puzzled not to get a Red Bull return as he did on Saturday, given this was such a, again, a strong performance from him, which we're, we're seeing quite consistently? Um, well, not really, because I didn't I didn't see anything in this Grand Prix or this weekend that we haven't seen from Gasly at other times this year or, or last year. Uh, I think this is I think this is Gasly at his peak. I think it's Gasly that only this team can sort of bring out of him, and he brings the best out of the team. We know that the Red Bull, especially the last two or three years has had a trait of rear instability that Max is incredibly good at handling and other drivers aren't. And Gasly, I think, is one of them. I think Gasly can get to the maximum or very, very, very close to the maximum of a car like this year's Alpha Tauri and last year's Alpha Tauri in a way that I don't think he could, he could even get to this year's Red Bull. We saw at the start of 2019 that there was just something about that the, the car that he couldn't get his head round and... We know he didn't endear himself to the team with the way that he then uh, applied himself during the struggle to adapt to the Red Bull. So sympathy, yes and no. Yes, in the sense that I don't think there's any more he could do as a driver and in terms of on-track performances and results to get a second chance at Red Bull. There was always the suggestion, you know, never say never. He's got the chance to rehabilitate at the sister team. Well, I don't see what else he could have done to have earned another chance. So in that sense, yes, I do have sympathy. The the, the reason that I wouldn't have sympathy is purely because Red Bull know everything they need to know about Gasly. They clearly don't think there's anything different about their car or the way they operate that Gasly would actually go in and do what he's doing now at AlphaTauri, for example. Or there's no reason why he'd go back into Red Bull the second time and do better than he did the first time. So... I, and I also think that with that in mind, I don't think that Red Bull's is the right place for him to be. I think it's very clear that Pierre thrives in an environment where everyone loves him, where he's not necessarily the centre of attention, but he has what he needs and he feels like he has what he needs. I think Alpha Tauri's getting the absolute most out of him and results like this prove that actually he's finishing about 
where he would in the second Red Bull, if not higher than he would be in the second Red Bull. So in that sense, I don't have sympathy for him because I think this is a very good place for him to be. I did write a piece, um, I think just before the Belgian Grand Prix, that he's sort of the driver that the driver market forgot in the sense because he's just kind of stuck where he is. Everything keeps moving past him. And in that sense, I do empathize with his situation quite a lot, but ultimately that, that return to Red Bull, I think is a little bit of a red herring in the context of Gasly's career. I just think there are better things for him away from that. So that's why I can't, that's why I can't answer the answer the question hundred percent saying, yes, I feel sorry for him. Yeah, still doing a very good job, but yeah, it's about the the type of job he can do and then the style of uh, of driver he he is. But Mark, let's kind of drop down the order a little bit and go to the recently established Sergio Perez sympathy corner. Obviously, he is the driver who has that Red Bull seat. Well, things went wrong on Saturday. Could you have asked for much more than his recovery to eighth, given the way the race panned out? Uh, yeah, could have asked him not to flat spot his set of hards that were supposed to last for ages but only lasted eight laps um so his his race only started after that after the second setback the first one being started from the pit lane as a result of not getting to the flag in time and qualifying which um, enabled them to do a few changes including a new power unit um but uh, the second one was uh, that that early pit stop which ruined the um the planned strategy so yeah you had to start again from scratch there and i mean given that he's in a red bull yeah, of course he's going to pass a lot of cars and finish in the points. So, yeah, I, I guess um, <laughs> he'd, he, some of those passes look very nice. You're going around the outside of Tarzan and you're going wheel to wheel and they look very nice. But in in reality, he's, he's passing cars that um, are up to a second a lap slow. So it, it is feasible. Yeah, and he could certainly, without that mistake of, been looking to be sixth place at, the, at least. So, yeah, I, I think there were some problems. And I do think probably, although he was backed up and everything on his on his, uh, on his his final uh, Q1 lap, he was being warned and he could have got to the line that little bit quicker to complete that lap and he didn't need to do something absolutely stellar to get through. So, yeah, I think he, he's partly the architect of his own uh, problems there, even though he obviously uh, did have a little bit of bad luck uh, as well. But Scott, bouncing back up the order, Charles Leclerc had a pretty straightforward run to a comfortable fifth. A little bit harder for teammate Carlos Sainz, who was passed by Fernando Alonso on the last lap. But unseen on the TV coverage, it was almost a very, very different outcome for Alonso, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Um, I I clocked this happen live because uh, I happened to be following Alonso's onboard at the time. And I was amazed to discover that it then didn't make it into the world feed, even on a replay. But and then, not, but that basically that entire Alonso signs battle didn't, including Alonso's pass at the very end. So it's it's fascinating. If um, if anyone does have uh, if anyone does have F1 TV access, I thoroughly recommend going back to it, uh, going back through it, finding Alonso's on go, going on Alonso's onboard. And I think it's about one hour and 36 minutes in exactly. I think you're going to see the moment. I've, I've talked about it in, a, uh, in an article that we've published on the race website. Uh, basically, Alonso had got quite close to signs into turn one. This was three laps from the end. It was on lap 69, but Alonso had been laps. It was, he had three more laps to go, including this one. He got close to signs through turn one. 
didn't quite come off. He followed him through turns two, obviously it's snakes round. And then obviously turn three, we were talking about at the, at the top of the podcast. So that glorious banking meant that everyone was going in like really high through the corner and they were all going basically two wheels over the white line onto the runoff on the outside. And the barrier is perilously close there. I mean, you were stood there watching it. There must be, there can't be like more than a meter, if that, between basically the edge of the runoff and the barrier. It, I don't even think there really is. I think maybe like, maybe it's like two or three meters from the white line to the barrier. It's sort of tarmac runoff and then just barrier, isn't it? <laughs> there's, there's, there's nothing there. Um, and basically what Alonso's done going into in the entry to the corner is he's taken he's had like a little bit of a moment on the way in and then he's just locked the brake he's he's locked the fronts and there's just a split second where he's just sliding into the barrier and i i made when i when i saw this happen live i made the weirdest noise because it's just one of those moments where like you just think like this guy's having a crash and you're just reacting to someone who's about to have a crash and then all of a sudden he manages to gather it all back up and unlock the front and steer out of the corner. And actually, in this entire moment, he doesn't actually lose that much time. He ends up still in DRS range of signs, which means a lap later, he's already back on Signs's case. And then going on to the final lap, actually passes Signs using DRS. And I think he had a bit more ERS deployment off the final corner. So he blasts past him into turn one, which obviously wasn't seen either. But yeah, the. Um, he, he, I, I don't think uh, you've seen the clip I'm talking about, Ed. I don't think I'm overselling it to say that like Alonso very nearly crashed out of the Grand, like, came really close to crashing out of the Grand Prix two, two or three laps from the end. Yeah, no, he was close. Well, you asked him about it, didn't he? And he, I imagine, uh, didn't give you reason to revise that <laughs> no, position. No, actually, it was quite funny because uh, uh, he sort of laughed. Uh, I think he thought because it wasn't on caught on TV, I thought, think, I think Fernando thought he might have gotten away with it. He, but he said, uh, said that he was trying to forget about it and now I've made him remember that it happened. But then he actually talked, about, talked through it quite nicely and he just said, um, he's, I can't remember the exact phrase he used, but he said basically there was no magic from him keeping it out of the wall. He said it was just complete luck. He was sliding off, both front wheels locked and then all of a sudden it, it it, it worked. Do you know what I mean? Like he just, he was able to it just, he got it slowed just enough to be able to release everything and then get back onto it. But he said he was just, it was just luck. He was, he, he heart in mouth. He thought he was out of the race, I think. Yeah, certainly shows how narrow the margins are between success and, and failure, shall we say. It ended up being a very successful end to the race for him. Sixth place for Fernando Alonso ahead of Carlos Sainz. And then Sergio Perez was eighth because he got Esteban Ocon uh, right near the end of it. But in 10th place, Mark, Lando Norris, it was a difficult weekend for McLaren, wasn't it? They lost third in the constructors' standings to Ferrari. Norris was a little bit subdued in qualifying, only managed a point in the race. So how do you explain probably his most difficult weekend of the year? Yeah, he said on Saturday he just didn't get it together. I mean, he he was denied the the final run by the the red flag in uh, q2 the the second one where they just abandoned it basically um and so he, he maybe would have um found a chunk but he was he was quite frank for the first time this year he just did did not put it together and he he felt um he not tuned into the car which was unusual because on friday he'd been super quick in it and um in his uh, on f- Friday morning on the mediums, he eventually pipped um, Verstappen on the, on the mediums. 
And he looked, you know, it looked like it was just going to carry on where it had left off and spar on Friday. Then on Saturday, it was just all to see. And um, Danny Ricciardo was about where Danny Ricciardo normally is. Um, so I don't know if it was a breakthrough so much for Daniel or, or just uh, something mysterious not clicking for Lando. I suspect more the latter. Yeah, it's, uh, and then the race-wise for Norris, he just had to do what he could. There was a little bit of team orders because he ran longer than uh, Daniel Ricciardo, 13 laps longer, I think it was. And then after his stop, he got uh, ordered past. So he kind of salvaged a point but by Norris standards this year. That doesn't sound uh, a great deal, but it's better than nothing. Although he was ahead of, as I mentioned, Ricciardo, who had an interesting race. He thought his race might be over before it even started. He thought he had a gearbox failure uh, when he pulled into his grid slot because uh, he couldn't get... Um, First engagement, it went into anti-stall, and he had a quick wave to the uh, to the starter to warn them that uh, that he might be in trouble. And then he'd reported it, obviously, to the pit wall. And Tom Stallard, his race engineer, just said, "Left hand start." So meaning because there's a clutch paddle on both sides, use the clutch paddle on the left. And uh, yeah, Ricardo was quite pleased with his uh, with his wrong-handed uh, start because he he lost a place to Russell, but uh, he actually ended the first lap uh, up a place overall. So uh, good effort from Ricardo, but. Didn't really uh, add up to anything because he ended up in 11th place. So, yeah, tricky weekend for McLaren. Well, returning to questions from the race members club, Colin Gallagher asked, what happened to Giovinazzi in the last part of the race? And do you think it'll impact his chances of keeping the seats for next year? I'll take the first part of that. He had a bit of a difficult time on the first lap because he got shoved onto the grass by Sainz. Then he hit the back of Alonso's Alpine. Alonso was having a uh, a big moment and actually got a little bit of front-end damage. It did cost him a tiny bit of downforce over the race. Held 10th ahead of Russell. Stayed there through the pit stops. Um, although he'd probably have slipped behind Norris and Perez, meaning scoring would have been difficult, uh, he picked up a puncher in that second stint. The team wasn't sure why. Just a sudden deflation. Didn't appear to be caused by contact or anything. And it meant he finished down in 14th behind Sebastian Vettel. That's the story of his race, Scott, and what happened to him. But would you like to address the impact on his chances of keeping the seat? Uh, I'd I'd love to, but I'll, I'll be honest, uh, I, I don't know. Um there's always so much speculation about um, where where drivers are going in, in the silly season. I think the Alfa Romeo situation is the most speculative. I've seen reports over... I've seen three different reports over the last week. One claiming that Giovinazzi is definitely out. One claiming that he's definitely in. And one claiming that he might lose his seat. And the in those situations, the the two situations where he's supposedly losing his seat, two different drivers are taking it. So I, I I'd rather just be honest and say I don't know. I think you know Fred Fred Vasseur, Alpha Team boss, has insisted that there has been no decision taken and the decision will be taken in the coming days. I think that Giovinazzi's qualifying performance sort of uh, was a was a useful and timely reminder of what he's capable of when everything comes together. But if uh, all it really did was underline every single bit of data that the team will have on him over the last two and a half years, which is that Giovinazzi at his peak is actually at a very high level. The question is whether he can access that peak regularly enough and actually whether he can convert opportunities that he ends up in into into points. And obviously he hasn't done that here. But I I think this was a bit more of a... This was Antonio Giovinazzi doing his best George Russell impression in that he did an amazing job on Saturday and then just battled various circumstances, none of which were really in his control and fell down the order on Sunday. Um, so 
I don't think this this weekend has done anything better or worse, really, for, for his, ch- his chances. It was a great reminder of what he's capable of over one lap, but that's about it. I think what's clear is in this driver market situation with the Williams and Alpha seats, is there's quite a few moving parts there. There were certainly plenty of meetings going on, so that there's still things happening, shall we say, in terms of, uh, of those decisions. But Mark, Oscar Robledo has a question. He asks, who is the better fit for Williams, Nick de Vries or Alex Albon? Tricky one. I'd want to know more about Nick de Vries because, um, yeah, we, we, we saw him win the F2 Championship, but not in a, in a stellar year. Uh, we saw him win in Formula E this year, uh, but it doesn't really uh, you know, necessarily translate to uh, the, the the skills that it requires aren't necessarily a, a perfect dovetailing with those of F1. I'd I'd, I'd want to look a bit more deeply into Nick. He's um, he's got a, a good CV, um, but I'd find it difficult to to rate him against a known quantity. Uh, Alex, we know plenty about, and I think um, you know if you look at the the deficit. Alex had to max in his rookie season uh, was about the same as Pierre Gasly had to max in his uh, second, third season. So I don't. I think there's still a, a, enough. I think he's shown enough that um, he would. He'd be worth worth seriously looking at uh, for Williams, and uh, I would. I'd be erring towards him, but I'd want to know more about um, Nick. I think that's a, that's a fair point. It does seem that Albon's quite prized now. He seems to have moved into quite a, a good position. There's all sorts of shenanigans, wasn't there, Scott, with Christian Horner, I think, accusing Mercedes of trying to nobble any chance of Alex Albon going to Williams. Perhaps it wasn't quite as simple as that, but uh, it shows it's it's, uh, it's quite an action-packed uh, driver market at the back, especially with the fact you've got the front-end teams getting involved. Yeah, it's... Um... It's like the the driver market, the silly season had like a final twist for us. We thought it was all, we thought it was heading to quite a sedate conclusion, and now actually, it, it it's got a little bit of spice to it. Just Red Bull and Mercedes just find they can find anything to argue over, can't they? This season, this packed with so much needle, they're just looking for excuses to take bites out of each other. I mean, the on this occasion, I kind of see both points, but I think Red Bull have less of a case. Um, I don't really think if you're Red Bull and Alex Albon's your driver, I don't think you can bemoan Mercedes stopping Alex from getting a seat in Formula One when Red Bull haven't put him in any of the four Red Bull owned seats. So I, I don't I don't I don't really think Red Bull have got much of a leg to stand on there. On the on the Mercedes side, I totally get why you wouldn't want a driver who's embedded within the Red Bull program to have access to your power unit unless you were absolutely certain that driver wasn't going to go back to Red Bull at the end of the year um, when Red Bull are building up their own engine program. I know that I'm not saying that a driver is going to run away with all sorts of secrets that are going to make the difference, but there's going to be stuff that you learn that you can then take back to them. And given Red Bull have got Sergio Perez, who has extensive knowledge of how recent Mercedes power units work. Uh, they then have up-to-date information from Albon potentially at the end of next year. So I understand why you want to, you don't need much of an excuse in that situation to not want that driver there. Um, so I, th- I actually think that's kind of a valid position for Mercedes to take. I understand why Red Bull would feel aggrieved by it and just say, well, there's no need for you to stop a driver from having a, the career opportunity they should have just because you don't like us. 
Um, but if Red Bull turn around and say, well, you know what, our priority here is Alex. So yes, we're going to cut ties with him. We have no formal contract with him or anything like that. If that's all it takes, call Mercedes bluff. Say, okay, here you go. We've, we, we, we'll end his contract the second you, the second Williams give him one. You know, it's just, it's all just claim and counterclaim with these two, isn't it? It's ping-ponging of quotes that just becomes a little bit tedious at, uh, at, at times. Let it get resolved. If, you, if, if, if Mercedes do genuinely have influence in this situation and they're laying down a simple condition for Red Bull to meet, why do Red Bull need to keep Alex under contract for next year? They don't. So let him go. If that's all it needs, they'll get the Williams drive, won't he? Everybody's happy. Yeah, it's not as if they've got a Formula One race seat they want to put him in. So they've got four of them and he he's not in any of them. So they can't really uh, complain uh, complain about that. But I think we will see some of those things moving firmly into place fairly shortly, although we might not be quite wise to hold our breath for, for that uh, just yet. But I think uh, one move that we are within breath-holding range of is uh, is the Russell to Mercedes. But Scott, we saw Russell have a rare off in qualifying. He still managed 11th uh, despite that, thanks to the red flag caused by Nicholas Latifi. He'd been 12th in the race ahead of Stroll, but for his gearbox problem, he had one stop and then he stopped to retire. So was this a proper hero to zero moment after the highs of Spa? Uh, I don't think it was hero to zero, but I think it was a bump back down to earth. Um, he had a... Um did he not? He had a five-second penalty, didn't he, for for speeding in the in, in in the pits? Yeah, he said he was just pushing that little bit too hard into the pits because he knew the only chance of uh, of kind of getting into points contention was to jump Giovinazzi, who, if memory serves, pitted at the same time. So he admitted his fault, just pushed that little bit too hard. Yeah, so I just think this was a slightly messy weekend. It wasn't a disaster by any means. Uh, obviously, I think he was a bit lucky to get away with the crash in the way he did in qualifying because it could have been a bit more damaging, but. Uh, it was not. It wasn't hero to zero. It was just. Uh, it just wasn't heroic, which is obviously what we've come to expect from Russell. We have Mark got used to seeing George Russell do the seemingly impossible in qualifying. He probably stretched that a little bit with his uh, his attempt at turn thirteen, didn't he? <laughs> yes, I was uh, optimistic in the extreme on um, some used tyres, and uh, yeah, he tried to go in there. Sort of ten clicks faster than Max Verstappen, and uh, it, 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 so unsurprisingly, the Williams didn't accept it. <laughs> but yeah, can't uh, fault his confidence. Yeah, well, he said that they had to to go at it at one hundred and twenty percent, which is uh, mathematically unsound, but metaphorically uh, acceptable. So uh, yeah, he did admit he made a few too many mistakes this weekend. But we should also, Mark, talk about his old teammates because Kimi Raikkonen who was not his old teammate, but he became the first driver this season to miss a race because of a positive COVID-19 test. Robert Kubica took over, finished 15th. He was 18th fastest in qualifying. How good was it to see him back racing an F1 car? Yeah, got a soft spot for Robert. I think um, a lot of us have. Um, and, yeah, I mean, it was zero notice and on a, you know, on a track that um, he'd not seen before and had no prep, no Friday preparation for, so I was asking a lot for him to, to to do much with that, but he was respectable. He was within seven-tenths of Giovinazzi and lapped within three-tenths of him in the race and finished one place behind him. And he did a pass. He succeeded in going around the outside Latifi. So, you know, he looked, it, it was perfectly um, Respectable performance, but uh, I, I don't think any of us are expecting any 
any of the old Robert magic in uh, such circumstances? Yeah, it was very much a question of being sensible. He said he took a very safe approach because that was the the correct thing. So I, I, I followed him throughout Saturday uh, following the onboards, and he, he did a very, very sensible job, built up nicely. Probably should have been a few tenths faster in, in qualifying, didn't quite have the tyres up to temperature for that final run in Q1, but it was a very tidy, professional, good performance. And uh, yeah, I thought maybe we'd seen him start his last Grand Prix, so uh, that's a bonus. Still possibility he'll be in the car for Monza as well, so we might get another race out of him. I don't think it changes his position in the in the driver market. He's, he's not uh, a threat for that seat, but uh, yeah, just a, a little extension to the, uh, the amazing Kibitza story. Now, Scott, dropping down to the world of Haas, Nikita Mazepin, was furious with Mick Schumacher after qualifying, complained about Schumacher passing him on the outlap, which it turned out Schumacher did have permission to do. Then they ended up side by side into turn 13 and impeding Sebastian Vettel. Then Schumacher was angry with Mazepin's defence in the race when Mazepin moved over on him at the end of the first lap on the, the straight, did some wing damage. It's not a good relationship, is it? No, it's not. Um, there, there's clearly a rift there, and it's. I think it's growing. I don't think they're getting it under control at all. I think... Part of the problem is that uh, I don't want to pin the blame squarely on on Mazepin, but in terms of how the relationship manifests itself publicly, I do think he is the uh, the prime offender there because he's the one who gets so vocal uh, afterwards. He just kind of can't help himself. Uh, he's pretty outspoken um, and... I just don't think I, I just think his emotions get the better of him sometimes. So he tends to hit out when he probably shouldn't. And then after qualifying it was weird because his initial anger was kind of understandable based on what he probably knew at the time, but then he had it explained to him and still went on the attack on Schumacher after having it explained to him that it was actually Hass's fault really, because they'd given Schumacher permission to do something that uh, you know he'd been a greedy wouldn't do. So I don't think Schumacher really did anything wrong with Mazepin still sort of went after him. And then the second part of it is on track, Mazepin doesn't really seem to be learning. He's sort of moving around in places where he shouldn't be. And he's just, in Schumacher's eyes anyway, Mazepin's taking way too many risks against his teammate over nothing positions basically so you then have this situation where you can tell Schumacher's gradually getting more riled up you know as I say he isn't the more outspoken of the two but we've seen it a couple of times now Baku was the first when Mazepin moved over on him at high speed and this at Zandvoort was the second where Mazepin was I think moving late in the in the breaking zone I think was what upset Mick this time so that has tipped Mick into saying things quite strongly in public about Mazepin now so yeah we're just in a situation where it's um uh I I don't think they I don't think the two get on I don't think they're ever going to get on I think as long as they're teammates there is going to be this underlying tension now um but you obviously spoke to both of them and Gunter Steiner as well didn't didn't you Ed so you're probably better place to comment on how badly this is spiraling out of control yeah, certainly on Saturday, it was very clear there, there was a problem. Mazepin, strange. He just seems to, obviously he's determined to beat Schumacher and he's he's lagged behind much of the season. 
and he, he just seems to not be able to let things go. It was very odd that he was continuing to stick the knife in on on Mick Schumacher at a point where the team had basically said, yeah, they had caused the problem because the Saturday problem was Massapin didn't understand why he'd been passed because he'd been told you can't pass your teammate on those outlaps. He hadn't been told that Schumacher had been given permission to do it because he needed a faster outlap to warm up the tyres. So the team originated it, so he should be angry uh, with them, really. In, in the race, I wasn't really very impressed with uh, with what Massapin did. It was, it was a proper move on the straight. He moved late when he saw Schumacher coming. And those moves are unacceptable and incredibly dangerous. He made contact with the front wing, but it wouldn't have taken things to be much different to have launched a car into the pit wall properly. So that needs to be clamped down upon. I think any, I think if they weren't teammates, that would have been picked up on by the stewards. And the stewards need to actually, while they've got this policy of if teammates get into each other, they generally let them get away with it. That's a general safety matter. And that's the second time we've seen that this season from Mazepin and that needs to not happen. And it's a shame because actually Mazepin's sort of started to show some decent promise in terms of pace this weekend. This is the first weekend where you might have said he had a shot of out-qualifying Mick Schumacher on, on pace. And perhaps that's why Mazepin was so angry. But yeah, difficult situation they've uh, they've got at that team. It's um, clearly pretty, pretty fractious. Mazepin's the more publicly uh, aggressive about it but Schumacher is diplomatic but reading between the lines it's clear uh, wh- what he thinks uh, well Mark finally let's just have a quick look ahead to Monza because we're straight on there next low down for sprint qualifying we back any feeling for who might have the edge there I think you've already given us a clue on that one from what you said earlier about the relative performance of Red Bull and Mercedes yeah in the dry it, uh, I would say I'd be very surprised if it wasn't Mercedes all the way um, but uh, see, if it's if it's wet, I haven't seen a forecast actually for this weekend. But it's sometimes wet at Monza, isn't it? If it's wet, it gets a lot closer. Um, but uh, yeah, in the dry, it's that's it, got Mercedes written all over it. Yeah, that seems uh, seems reasonable. Connected to that is a question, Scott, from Yanis van der Waal, who asked if perhaps Verstappen should take his potential engine change there with the penalties that come with it, or should he save it for? Later, you're always on top of Honda business. Do you strike? Does it strike you as a little bit too early for that? Um, I, I think it. I think it is. I think not so much in terms of, not so much in terms of timing to get to the rest of the season because obviously Perez took strategic penalties here because he qualified so poorly. So Honda obviously think that's enough to get to the end of the season. So I think a change at Monza would be enough logistically in terms of managing the rest of the year. But I don't. I don't think it's necessarily the, the best track. I, I wouldn't. I, I I think it's fair to say that Mercedes probably the favourite for, for for Monza. But um, cor- correct me if I'm wrong. But last year, didn't we see Bottas and actually Verstappen for until he had the problem stuck in the DRS train during the race and struggling to make progress? Because I think. Can't remember which way around it was, but I just think that they just weren't particularly competitive last year. They didn't qualify very well, and then I think he was just stuck in the pack. So I don't know whether this is. I don't think Monza is necessarily because everyone takes their low wings there, low drag wings. I don't think it's quite like Spa in the sense of you uh, how you can work your way up to the front. So I actually wonder if whether Red Bull would fancy their chances um, less at a place like Sochi. And just think, well, that's one that Max is probably only going to be third at. So maybe we'll take the 
maybe we'll take the uh, the penalty there because then you've got two really long straights with DRS to just gradually pick your way up the order. Whereas Monza, it's just a bit easier to trip up over people, maybe get a bit stuck. But I honestly don't know. And if the calendar had gone ahead as normal, I'd have said Sochi for sure, taking the grid penalties there. because They've taken the grid penalties at Sochi and then had a fresh one, fresh engine for Suzuka. That they'd have been looking ahead to that one. Obviously, I think it would have been Turkey in between, but they'd have had their eyes on Suzuka, I'm sure. But now the absence of that race, I'm not entirely sure how they're going to play it. Yeah, it's something they could also take a view on during the weekend, I guess, and, and see how it looks. Although there's not much time given there's only one free practice session as well. So straight to qualifying on on Friday. So interesting one. It is worth remembering that, as you point out, Monza's not such a great overtaking circuit, even though there is the extra bit of racing with the sprint race. Yeah, actually, your your reference to sprint race there has just made made me think Ed, as well. I don't I don't think they'll take the grid penalty at Monza because they'd have to uh, start at the back for the for the race itself, and I just think it's a I think it's a waste of time basically to have to go through the process of qualifying and the sprint race just to then start at the back of the grid because of a bunch of engine change penalties, you know. So I wonder if they're uh, I I think they might wait a few races yet. Yeah, that would probably seem uh, very sensible. And and finally, before we sign off, we've got to briefly mention the banking, particularly turn three properly. I know we briefly touched on it, but that, that really added something, didn't it, Mark? The challenge of the different lines the drivers took. It was it's a great addition. We need to see more of that sort of thing, don't we? Yeah, completely. It, it's um, it brought a complete, completely new dimension, just just that particular part of the track. And um, it's, it's also, because it's... Yeah, there's there's one quick line through it, which Fernando Alonso was very quickly on too. But th- th- there are a variety of feasible lines, and that's what makes it good for racing because you don't necessarily have to get you know uh, so compromised by the the wake of the car ahead of you. And so it makes a lot of feasible lines there, and it just yeah, it just adds to the the visual drama of it. I mean, it took a little ride around there in a th- sort of motorized thing, this trolley thing this morning, and. Um, as you're approaching it, it's you know you're looking at a wall, and I, you can imagine first time through there, you're thinking, "How am I going to get through here at any speed?" It's just a very different uh, sensation to the conventional corners that we used to, and uh, yeah, definitely adds brings a a new element to it. Yeah, the more variety, uh, the better. Do you enjoy the banking, Scott? And uh, thumbs up for Zandvoort. Yeah, I I loved it. Like I said. Uh, I thought it was uh, I thought it was a brilliant addition. One of the um it's very rare that I actually care about a corner in particular. Normally it's kind of like sequences of corners or whole tracks as a in terms of the character that they bring. Like um like for example just Imola or the under un, the overall sort of roller coaster nature of Algarve, for example, seeing stuff like that. But I think like as much as I think Zandvoort as a whole is very cool and lots about it was just really awesome to see cars around there in anger. Just the the just the, that that image of the banked turn three in particular is just it, that will stick with me from the weekend. So it was an absolute highlight for sure. Yeah, and we're already looking forward to uh, to coming back next year. Well, thanks very much to Scott and Mark for your insight. Do head to the race.com and don't forget the hyphen. There's loads to read there. Mark's race analysis will be up. My driver rating. Scott's writing about some Alpine shenanigans and a little bit about what Lewis Hamilton thinks of uh, the Red Bull performance. Make sure you check out our sister podcasts, including the Race IndyCar podcast and Bring Back V10s. And if video's your thing, head to our YouTube channel. 
We're heading south to Monza next, and we'll be back soon with everything you need to know about the Italian Grand Prix. Or if there's driver news in the next few days, which is uh, very possible, we'll be back even sooner. <laughs>